Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetic series, posted July 31st, 2020, titled, How Do You Know That Christianity Is True? Billy Graham was a great evangelist, and I think Robbie Zacharias is the great apologist. Uh, Robbie and I were classmates in seminary. We began seminary together by taking apologetics. Robbie's insight was just so profound in so many ways. And Robbie makes the statement, he says, the truth is the most important thing in the entire world. I guess it's time I take a look at Ravi Zacharias. Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. If you're new to the channel, please take a second to tap on the subscribe button so that you'll be notified when new science, theology, and news videos come out. When I was an evangelical Christian, I was vaguely aware of Ravi Zacharias, but he wasn't someone who influenced my thoughts or those around me. Rightly or wrongly, I thought of him more as a soft, heartstring, storyteller, stadium preacher, more akin to Billy Graham than to apologists like William Lane Craig or C.S. Lewis. In fact, if you scroll through my videos and see which apologists and creationists I address, they are the people who are influencing the Christians I know and love in real life. The guest speakers who've shown up in my church. The authors of the books on the nightstands of my family. The authorities quoted when debating theology. I'm sorry if your favorite Christian thinker isn't included. They may well be brilliant, but they're not presently influencing those who I hope to influence. Around the time I left my Christian faith, I became generally aware that Ravi Zacharias was making waves more for some personal and professional controversies. Some of these are documented at a website called raviwatch.com if you're interested in the sordid details, though they are irrelevant to the topic at hand today. I mention this only to say that I made the mistake of assuming that Ravi would become less influential in the coming years. Why was I wrong? Sadly, Ravi passed away earlier this year, and I was somewhat taken aback by the outpouring of praise and admiration for him from the apologists that I do cover regularly. If Ravi remains such an influencer of today's influencers, maybe it's time I take a look. And what better place to start than his most popular YouTube video, watched over 4 million times. If all religions claim to be truth then how can Christianity make that claim and think that it is correct? Appreciate that question, <clears throat> and it's a question that has the assumption that is very correct. Oftentimes, the Christian takes the hit that he or she was a follower of Jesus Christ is the only one who lays claim to exclusivity. That is not true. When I was a Christian, I felt extra confidence in my correctness because of the exclusivity claims. No man comes to the Father but by me. I couldn't understand why anyone would want to be part of a religion that put itself forth merely as one of several options to the same destination. 
exclusivity seemed like a feature, not a bug. If it was true, that is. Islam is also exclusivistic in its claim, uh, in all of its precepts and its five pillars and so on. When it comes to the Abrahamic faiths, they have an interesting problem when it comes to truth probabilities. Because these religions build on other religions, those with more layers are necessarily less probable. We start with Judaism, which has its base in the Old Testament. I realize this is a Christian-centric label for the Torah, the Law, and the Prophets, and that each Abrahamic faith disagrees on what text should constitute that foundation. But let's simplify for now to mean the portions of Judaism that get borrowed by other faiths. Then we have Christianity, which layers on the claims of the New Testament. Christianity's truth requires both the Old and New Testaments be true. So more points of failure than Judaism. Then we have Islam, which affirms much of the Old and New Testaments, and adds the Quran on top of that. So now there are three layers, each with its own points of failure. The Book of Mormon also relies on the Old and New Testaments, so also has three points of failure, and so on. I often hear the question posed wrongly. They'll say, are all religion, aren't all religions fundamentally the same and superficially different? No, they are fundamentally different, and at best they are superficially similar. What are the fundamental claims, for example? In Buddhism, the goal is to ex extinguish hunger, extinguish desire. Well, the Buddhists I've spoken to express the goal as enlightenment, a state of ultimate happiness beyond this physical world. To an outsider, this sounds at least somewhat like the Christian goal of heaven. When I was a Christian, I'd have argued, like Ravi, that because the mechanisms to achieve the goal are different, that the religions are obviously fundamentally different. There are certainly some politically inclined people who would argue all day that the U.S. Democratic and Republican parties are incredibly different. But ultimately, they're both just political parties vying for the right to govern. You take a look at other world religions and see where these four questions are dealt with. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Okay, just jotting these down for later. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. It does seem like Ravi is saying that all religions are attempt to answer these four questions. Wouldn't that make them more similar than different? These four questions have to be answered in two ways. Follow me, please. Every particular answer has to correspond to truth, either through empirical form of measurement or through the logical reasoning process. I agree. Truth is the extent to which a proposition conforms to reality. Empirical measurement is good. Logical reasoning is okay. The best test of a truth claim is its ability to predict future data. But those nuances are probably best left for another time. And when those four answers are put together, they must cohere and not be incoherent. So the two tests, correspondence and coherence. It's possible that when Ravi says incoherent, he means nonsensical or non-logical. But I think he means coherence in the sense of internal consistency. Like when our favorite fictional universe entertainment properties put forth new stories, we're bothered when new plot elements contradict previously established elements. They don't cohere. Ravi is advocating that we grade a religion on how well their answers work in harmony, or at least fail to create new plot holes, as it were. I'm sure Ravi would acknowledge that countless conspiracy theories or works of fiction 
can maintain impressive internal consistency when they try. So as far as truth goes, this is really a secondary factor compared to how well it corresponds to reality. I guarantee you, only in the Judeo-Christian worldview will you find these four questions answered with corresponding truthfulness and with the coherence of a worldview. Ravi guarantees it. Here's the way I see it, Ted. Guy puts a fancy guarantee in a box because he wants you to feel all warm and toasty inside. Yeah, makes a man feel good. Of course it does. Why shouldn't it? You figure you put that little box under your pillow at night, the guarantee fairy might come by and leave a quarter. Am I right, Ted? <laughs> I'm sorry, Ravi, but I spent too many decades just accepting the reliability of Christianity based on the promises and assurances of teachers and preachers. I do my own homework and fact-checking now as I wish everyone would. Let me take just one example. Excellent. An example of how Christianity is coherent and true. Just what I'm looking for. In the Quran, it is the only historically claimed document. <laughs> Wait, what? Surely you know that pointing out failures of Islam does absolutely nothing to demonstrate the truth of Christianity. The original question posed to Ravi wasn't, which religion seems most true? The question was, how do you know that Christianity is actually true? It is the only historically claimed document that denies that Jesus Christ was actually crucified or died on the cross. Denies that. The Greek historians say he died on the cross. Roman historians say that. Pagan historians say that. Jewish historians say that, and Christian historians say that. I happen to be adequately convinced to say that it is likely that someone named Jesus was crucified by the Romans. But like all history, this is merely a provisional assessment of available data. And the sources available are somewhat interreliant and may not say exactly what Ravi's claiming. But let's not belabor our caveats here. See my video, Are There Authentic Secular Writings About Jesus? for more on this. The Quran is the only one that says it appeared to him that he died, but he didn't actually die on the cross. So historically, it is making an affirmation that is really historically untrue. I do wish the Quran didn't claim this, because it is the single reason that Christian apologists feel they have to keep defending against something called the swoon theory. However, I think that if one wanted to be pedantic, they could press the point that the secular accounts of Jesus don't actually have enough information to refute the swoon theory. Only the New Testament gospel accounts take time to document and affirm the kill. Target destroyed. Top solo kill confirmed. Target destroyed. But at the same time, as already discussed, the Quran affirms the gospels as divine prophecy. So Ravi's point about a contradiction probably stands. But again, disproving Islam isn't at all the same as affirming Christianity. I got into a discussion with Sheikh Hussein of the leading Shiite cleric in Damascus, Syria, a real gentleman. For over three hours, we talked with an interpreter between us. Now, this is the kind of beside-the-point color commentary storytelling that I had expected from what I knew of Rabbi Zacharias. And then at the end, he looked at me, leaned over, and he said, you know, Professor, I think the time has come for us in the Islamic world to stop asking if Jesus Christ died and to start asking why. Wait, why is there clapping for that? Because he left a big pregnant pause clearly designed to be filled with clapping? That didn't mean anything. 
It was a deepity, like might be doled out by the Sphinx character in the underrated Mystery Men movie. He who questions training only trains himself at asking questions. What? Like all crucifixion victims, the reason Jesus died is that he was found guilty of a capital crime. No big mystery. When I hear stories like this in a sermon, I'm never quite sure how much to trust the historicity of the anecdote versus maybe embellishment to hit a rhetorical note. I said to him, may I quote you on that, sir? He said, yes, you may. Oh, well then, if he said, yes, you may. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. The Judeo-Christian worldview is not the only one that claims exclusivity, but it's the only one that takes those four questions with corresponding answers that are truthful and coherent answers that stand the test of time. Hold the phone there, Ravi. The question is, how do you know Christianity is true? The answer can't just be, trust me, it's true. And someone else's wrong answers don't demonstrate that you have correct answers. Because these are not tautologically true-false questions. What you are failing to consider is that perhaps no religion is correct. In fact, what do your key questions look like if no religion is correct? Origin. Well, some sort of energy singularity expanded into our current instantiation of space-time. Eventually, atoms clustered into stars, planets, and life. Meaning, because each of us has only one life, we generally treat it as precious and want to use it well. That's meaning. Morality. As a social species, our survival advantages lie in working together. And working together is more efficient when we can empathize with others. When we treat others as we would want to be treated, things are better for all. There's more prospering, less suffering, and better survival. And these empathetic traits get passed on more. Destiny. We all have one life that will one day end. The limited supply encourages, among most, the value, the meaning, the morality we spoke of. There we go. These answers correspond precisely with reality and are entirely internally consistent. No religion required. Of course, my quality answers don't necessarily negate other possible answers. If only Ravi understood this. Thank you so much for watching. I recently covered a similar video from William Lane Craig, who argued that a world without God isn't one that he would enjoy. Is that an argument though? Click on the thumbnail and I'll see you there. Later.